John chapter 15 is the portion of scripture we read this morning. John chapter 15 verses 1 through 15. In this section, Jesus gives uh, instruction concerning who he is as the vine and who God's people are as branches uh, living out of the vine. John 15, we're reading this in connection with Lord's Day 7 of the Catechism on what true faith is. John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman, the gardener. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and on the basis of many passages that we have the instruction of Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism found on page 6 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 7. Are all men then, as they perished in Adam... 
saved by Christ? No. Only those who are ingrafted into Him and receive all His benefits by a true faith. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also an assured confidence, which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? All things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. What are these articles? And what follows there are the articles of the Apostles' Creed that we will be reciting this evening. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, to help us understand where we are in the catechism, let's do a brief review. In Lord's Days 2 through 4, we looked at how great our sin and misery is. And we looked at both the misery of our guilt and the misery of our corruption. We saw that left to ourselves, outside of Jesus Christ, we are worthy of both temporal and eternal punishment. We are guilty sinners worthy of death. In addition, we also saw that left to ourselves, outside of salvation in Christ, we are totally depraved. We are corrupt, dead in sins and trespasses, enemies against God who cannot do and who refuse to do that which is pleasing in God's eyes. Left to ourselves, outside of Christ, we are completely lost in sin. Then, with Lord's Days 5 and 6, we looked at what kind of a mediator we need. We saw that God will have His justice satisfied. God demand, demands that full payment for sin be made. And since we can't make satisfaction of God's justice ourselves, we must look outside ourselves, without ourselves, for that mediator. And the only one who can make the full payment for all our sins... And the only one who can also restore to us righteousness and life is God Himself. God Himself come in the likeness of our own flesh and blood. And at the end of Lord's Day 6, the Catechism emphasized that this is what the gospel is all about. The gospel tells us the good news of what God has done the creator of heaven and earth, the omnipotent God has come down. He himself has taken upon himself our own flesh and blood and he has provided a full and free salvation in and through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has secured a complete salvation from all our sins. There is salvation for sinners. And that's where we left things off at the end of Lord's Day 6. Well, now here this morning, as we come to Lord's Day 7, there's a, a question that is lingering, a question that still needs to be answered, and that question is this. Well, how do we actually get Jesus, right? How is Jesus actually made mine? Yes, in Jesus Christ are hid all the riches of salvation, 
But how do I actually become a partaker of that salvation? How am I actually made a partaker of Jesus' work? I hope you understand the question. That's why Lord's Day 7 starts out the way that it does. Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? We haven't really dealt with this issue yet, and so it's a reasonable question to ask. right? If all men died in the first Adam, if all men died in Adam and Jesus is the second Adam, does that mean then that all men are saved in the second Adam just as all men died in the first Adam? And that question really leads into the consideration of this question. How actually are men saved? Are we just poof, magically saved? How does salvation actually work? And that's where we come to this important topic this morning of faith. And that's what the Catechism now brings up in the next Lord's Day, Lord's Day 7. We are saved through faith. So, that's our topic this morning. We take as our theme, saving faith. And we look at four things about saving faith. We look first at the gift of saving faith, that it is a gift of God. Second, we look at the bond of saving faith. Third, we look at the faculty of saving faith. And then fourth, we look at the activity of saving faith. First of all, before we even get into the details of what saving faith is, we need to take this approach and remember that saving faith is a gift of God. That's very helpful to understand at the outset. Faith is a gift of God. And here I want to show you how the catechism is very wise. It's very helpful in how it treats this matter. Because right away in question and answer 20, the catechism emphasizes this reality that faith is a gift. Are all men then as they perished in Adam saved by Christ? No, only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. Notice how the catechism answers, words that question and answer. It speaks there of being engrafted into Jesus Christ. And that word engrafted is in the passive. We don't engraft ourselves into Jesus Christ. Rather, we are engrafted into Jesus Christ by another. And the Catechism, therefore, speaks of faith as the gift of God. This is the work of God. I draw your attention to that because just think for a moment of how the Catechism could have answered the question. The Catechism could have answered question 20 by putting it this way. No, not all men are saved, but only those who believe in Jesus Christ and embrace Him as their personal Savior. What do you think about that? If you ask the question, are all men saved? And I answered it by saying, no, but only those who believe in Jesus Christ and embrace Him as their personal Savior. Would that be wrong? No, that would be exactly right. And and there are times when that may be exactly the answer that needs to be given. Think about what Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. The Philippian jailer with much urgency says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what do Paul and Silas say? They say, Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And that's exactly what the Philippian jailer needed to hear. He needed to hear that call to repent and believe and God used that to bring the Philippian jailer to faith. And that call to repent and believe is 
is what needs to be heard in the preaching as well. It really needs to be heard every Sunday again, even for ourselves, to repent and believe. But here's the difference, why the catechism doesn't take that approach. Where are we here in Lord's Day 7? Well, we are in a catechism. We're not in a Philippian jail. We are in a catechism. And the catechism is here to instruct God's people so that they understand how they are delivered from their sin and misery. The catechism here is aiming at giving us instruction so that we understand how we are delivered from our sin and misery. And so the catechism gives a different answer than in Acts 16. It gives us an answer that goes deeper, that is meant to teach us more fully about our salvation. Because here's the thing. Many people will say this. Who are saved? Well, only those who believe in Jesus Christ. They will give that answer, which is not wrong. It's a good answer. Yet the reality is, the danger might be that their entire way of thinking about that answer is wrong. And so that their thought patterns are actually quite different than the thought patterns of Paul and Silas in Acts 16. Because the way that many think is like this. God has provided salvation for everyone, right? God sincerely offers, he has a well-meaning offer for everyone to get saved. Jesus died for everyone. God wants all men to be saved. This thinking goes. And now all that's left for you is to choose to be saved. And in order for you to get yourself saved, all you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ. As if the act of believing is somehow this act that originates from who I am in and of myself outside of Jesus Christ. And then ultimately, how are we delivered from our sin and misery if that's the case? Well, we're delivered from our sin and misery by our own work, our own act of believing. We deliver ourselves. But the problem with that way of thinking is that it goes against everything that we've already studied and learned in the first section of the Catechism. Remember what the first section of the Catechism has taught us. It has taught us that left to ourselves outside of Christ, we are at enmity against God. Left to ourselves outside of Christ, we are totally depraved, dead in sins and trespasses. And the point then is, how can a dead man choose to believe in Jesus Christ? He can't. And in his spiritual deadness, he rejects Jesus. He hates Jesus. And that's you and me by nature. And the question we are facing right now is this. How does that kind of a person get saved? How is a totally depraved person delivered from his sin and misery? Well, we've already looked at part of the equation in previous Lord's Days. First, Jesus had to die for our sins on the cross, satisfy God's justice. He also needed to live that perfect life of obedience, fulfilling all righteousness. And only when that is done can we entertain the thought of deliverance from sin and misery. But the reality is, there is yet more that needs to be done. Because even though Jesus bore the punishment for all our sins on the cross, if we don't actually belong to Jesus, we're still dead in sins. We're still totally depraved. We're still in the misery and bondage of our own sins. And if all Jesus did was die for our sins, and he never actually comes and makes us partakers of these benefits that are found in him, 
we still wouldn't have salvation. The point is, it takes more than just Jesus' act of dying for our sins on the cross to save us from our sin. It also takes Jesus' work by His Holy Spirit of uniting us to Himself, regenerating us, breaking those chains that held us in our sin and corruption, making us an actual partaker of what He obtained through His suffering and death on the cross. Before we come to Jesus, Jesus must first come to us. So the point is this. If a person says we are saved by believing in Jesus Christ, well, then you see there's still the question, well, how does a totally depraved person, dead in sins, actually come to believe in Jesus? How does a person who is in himself totally depraved actually come to believe? And in the way the Catechism approaches this question, it emphasizes that when it comes to this aspect of our salvation as well, This aspect of our deliverance from our sin and misery, this too is all God's work. Faith in Jesus Christ is a gift of God. So with all that being said, I hope we can understand more fully why the Catechism answers the question the way that it does. Are all men saved? No. But only those who are engrafted into Jesus Christ and who receive all His benefits by a true faith. So faith is, first of all, a gift of God. Now, all of this discussion leads us to consider the second thing about saving faith, and that's this. Saving faith is the bond that unites us to Jesus Christ. Right? Everything that we've said so far this morning might lead us to ask the question, well, what is saving faith? What actually is faith? And a helpful way to begin answering that question is by saying this. Faith is, first of all, or or, I'll say this in just a moment, but faith is, first of all, that bond that unites us to Christ. Right? When we talk about faith, we must certainly talk about that activity of true faith. Faith is our activity of embracing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's our calling, and that's what we must do. That's what true faith is, looking to Jesus, taking Jesus to myself, coming to Jesus. We must live by faith. We must walk by faith. That's the whole book of James, the activity of faith. But the point is, you can't have that activity. You can't embrace Jesus with the true faith, except you're first made a partaker of Jesus by faith. You can't have the activity, except you first have Jesus and his life given to you. Because it's out of that power of Christ that you believe and embrace Jesus Christ. And so how do you have Jesus Christ given to you? Well, by Jesus himself uniting you to himself. By Jesus himself first embracing you and taking you to himself. By Jesus himself in an act of mercy imparting unto you himself and giving you his spirit. And this union, this union with Jesus, we can refer to as the bond of faith. And this is one thing that I would emphasize. We're so used to thinking of faith as an activity, right? I believe this. I believe that. We say the Apostles' Creed every Sunday night. But faith, as to its essence, is this. Union 
with Jesus. And now, this is where we go with this. That union with Jesus is so rich and so so deep and mysterious that in order to understand this union better, we break it up into two different aspects, the bond of faith and the activity of faith. Now, ultimately, these two aspects cannot be separated because faith is a spiritual bond whereby we are so united to Christ that we live out of, out of Him through that bond. Faith is the spiritual bond whereby we are made one body with Jesus. We are made one plant with Jesus. So that by faith we live from Jesus. We draw our all out of Him and thus we receive all His benefits. Faith is an active bond. Faith is a living bond. You can't separate the two. Where there is that bond... Well, because it's an active living bond, there will be the activity. To help us understand the bond of faith, God has given us pictures in his creation. And one of the most prominent pictures is the picture of the gardener and grafting a branch into the stem of another plant. This is also why we read from John chapter 15. And maybe if, especially if you children and young people don't know what engrafting is, I would encourage you to talk to your parents today and maybe you can even look up on the internet, get a video of what engrafting actually is. Taking a a branch and engrafting it into a vine so that you understand this material this morning a little more deeply. In the idea of engrafting, you have two things. You have a vine on the one hand or you have a tree or whatever kind of plant and you have a branch that has been cut off from another plant. And you want to attach that branch to the vine or to the tree. Now the vine itself is a living organism. The vine has life of itself. And the life of that vine is one. One life that is shared by the roots and by the trunk and by the branches and by the leaves and by the flowers and by the fruit. And every branch enjoys the life of the vine exactly because every branch is connected to the vine through a living bond. Right? The vine sends its sap, it sends its life to the branch, and the branch lives out of that life and bears fruit out of that life. Now, in the work of engrafting, what a farmer wants to do, or a gardener, is this. He wants to take a foreign branch from another vine and join it to this vine so that this branch might share in the goodness and the life of this vine and receive its benefits, and live out of it. And so what the farmer does is this. He makes a little cut in that vine, in the the trunk or the stem of that vine. He inserts this branch into that trunk, and he fastens them together in such a way that a bond forms between the vine and the branch. In a wonder of God, in nature, the vine makes a bond with the branch. The vine takes the branch to itself, and the vine starts pushing its sap, its life, through the branch. Soon, this branch will be just like the other branches, bringing forth flowers and fruit to the delight and honor of the gardener. Now, that's what happens with the believer. The believer is a branch that is engrafted into Jesus Christ. Christ is the vine We are the branches, and we are engrafted into Christ by God. And we are made partakers 
of that one life of Jesus Christ. The life of Christ begins flowing through us, and we begin to live out of the vine. So that just as Paul writes in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The believer is one who has been so united to Christ through the bond of faith and is living out of Christ so that in a very real way the believer is one with Christ. As a branch that has been engrafted into Christ, I live. Nevertheless, the life that I live is the life of the vine. It's the life of Christ. And should I ever be removed from the vine, I would die. As a branch, I bear fruit. Nevertheless, that fruit itself is the very result of the life of Christ flowing through me. And of course, when we are engrafted into Jesus Christ, a great miracle takes place because it's not like what happens in nature. Because in nature, what you have to do is you have to take a living branch from from another plant if you want to make sure the graft works. You can't take a dead branch off the ground. But that's exactly what happens with us in Jesus Christ. We're not just branches on another living tree. We're, we're dead branches on a dead tree or dead branches on the ground. And by a wonder of God's grace and power, he takes us up dead branches, he engrafts us into Jesus Christ, and a wonder happens so that we who are dead branches now become regenerated and become living branches. Well, that helps us sometimes... That helps us answer a question that sometimes God's people have. A question that we sometimes have as God's people is this. When was I regenerated? Right? When was I made spiritually alive in Christ? And there's confusion about that because many people will say, well, it's when I accepted Jesus Christ. When I accepted Jesus, then I was born again. That's a very common answer. But that answer is backwards. The answer is this. I was regenerated the moment that God took me and engrafted me into Jesus Christ. As soon as God took me and engrafted me into Jesus Christ, that's when the benefits of Jesus Christ began flowing to me and through me. And the first benefit that I received as a partaker of Jesus Christ is this, his life. So that I'm resurrected from the dead, spiritually. I am regenerated. That's when I was regenerated. And I certainly embrace Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I love Him and I cling to Him. But all of that is the fruit of the very fact that God has first restored me to spiritual life. Now, when does that happen? When are we engrafted into Jesus Christ? The catechism students know I like to ask these kinds of questions. When were you engrafted into Christ? Well, when you were regenerated. Well, that's, that's not the best answer. Well, it could, it could happen when I was in my mother's womb that I was engrafted into Christ. That was the case with John the Baptist, right? Remember when he leaped in his mother's womb? That was evidence that there was spiritual life in him, in his mother's womb. Well, with the Apostle Paul, it happened when he was walking on the road to Damascus, ready to kill God's people. And he was changed. For the thief on the cross, it happened a few minutes or hours, moments before his death. And what happens when you are engrafted into Christ through faith? What happens is this, you are saved. That's when you are made a partaker of what Jesus did on the cross. You're made a partaker of his benefits. That's when you're made a new creation. 
That's when you're raised from spiritual death. That's when you receive a new identity. That's the moment Jesus is actually given to you and he has made your wisdom and your righteousness and your sanctification and your redemption. The blessings of salvation are not only merited by Jesus, but they are in Jesus. And you are made a partaker of him and of all that he is and all his blessings through the bond of faith. You are a branch and grafted into the vine and you live out of Jesus. That's how God delivers his people out of their sin and misery. Not only out of their guilt, but but out of their corruption. This is also why we can view the little children of believers who die in infancy as going to heaven when they die. Not because they have an automatic pass to heaven simply because they're the physical children of believers. Not because they are innocent and they haven't committed any sin. No, we know they have original sin. Not because, well, God just loves little children so much he winks at their sin and makes an exception. No, but because we view these children as having been engrafted into Jesus Christ. They are members of his church members of his body, members of the vine. And that's why we baptize them, and that's why when they die, we, can, we, can have no, we have no doubt. We have no reason to doubt that, that they are in Christ. Now, all this being said, the calling we have as members of Christ is to bear fruit, right? The calling we have is to uh, abide in him. That's John chapter 15. He is the vine, we are the branches And the whole reason God has saved us and engrafted us into Jesus Christ is that we might bear fruit to the glory of God. Jesus is instructing his disciples to continue to live out of him. They must exercise the activity of believing, trusting, and confiding in Jesus. Well, we'll look at that activity in just a moment. So far, we've looked at two things. First, saving faith is a gift of God. Second, saving faith is the bond that unites us to Christ. Now, the third thing that we want to mention about saving faith is this. Saving faith can also be spoken of as a faculty. A faculty that God imparts to us the very moment we are engrafted into Jesus Christ. When I refer here to faith as a faculty, what I mean is this. Faith is a spiritual power. It's a a new disposition or ability or aptitude to apprehend and appropriate Christ and all his benefits. When I speak of the faculty of faith, I'm not yet speaking of the actual activity of believing. What I'm referring to here is the actual ability to believe. Not believing, not that activity yet, but the ability to believe, the fitness to believe. Through union with Jesus Christ, I am made spiritually fit to apprehend spiritual things and take in spiritual things. And really, this is just the result of the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. I'm equipped with the Spirit, and and I have this faculty. I'm able to believe. For example, for a comparison, think of a newborn baby. Right? Just like when we're regenerated, we're like newborn babies. But now think of a physical newborn baby. When that baby is born, that baby has all the intellectual and mental faculties 
that he's going to enjoy exercising when he grows up and gets older. When the baby is in the cradle, that baby has the faculty to think, has the faculty to, to choose, to perceive, to understand the world about him. He has the, we might even say, the faculty to walk and talk. He's not yet doing it, but he has the faculty, right? If a, if a child grows up to be athletically gifted or musically gifted, what do we so often say? We so often say, well, he was born with it in a sense. Obviously, that doesn't mean that a baby born out of the womb starts running and skipping and jumping the moment it's born. But these things were in the baby from birth. These things had to grow and develop and be exercised. But they're there. Now, it's the same thing for us spiritually when we are regenerated. When we are engrafted into Christ and given the Holy Spirit and given new life, we are given the faculty of believing. We're given the ability, the aptitude, the fitness to believe. Before we were engrafted into Christ, we didn't have that faculty. Maybe we still had natural faculties. We could run and walk and talk. But we didn't have this spiritual faculty. You see, this faculty of faith is an entirely spiritual faculty that God gives his children. In regeneration, when we're born again, we're given this faculty. And with this faculty, we are able to take Christ to ourselves. We are branches made alive who have been given the ability now to draw our life out of the vine. Or to use another figure, we are spiritually newborn children who have been now given the spiritual hand and mouth of faith to appropriate Christ and to take him to ourselves, right? Belgian Confession, Article 35, faith is the hand and mouth of the soul whereby we take Christ to ourselves. That's the faculty of faith. And as we spiritually grow and we develop, what happens is this. Not only are we, right at first, maybe we're spoon-fed, but now we grow up and we develop. We're exercising this faculty of faith. That faculty of faith develops and it grows into this conscious activity of believing. And how does that happen? What well, happens through contact with the gospel, sitting under the preaching, where Christ Jesus is presented to us and, and we're taking him, we're learning to take him, even as children, under the preaching? The Holy Spirit applies the gospel to the heart of the newly engrafted, regenerated child of God, and the child of God grows in his ability. It grows in his activity, then, of believing as he exercises this faculty. Now, for me personally, I think having that idea of the faculty of faith is very helpful. It's important for a number of reasons. It's helpful and important because it helps us understand what our responsibility is as God's regenerated children. God gives us the faculty of faith, and it is our calling to exercise that faculty. Right? You're given the faculty of walking. Now, as you grow up, God, in a sense, gives you the calling to to learn how to walk and walk and then, and then be active. And for us too, spiritually, it's our calling to exercise that faculty. God makes us alive and then God calls us to live and walk in his ways, living out of Christ. And so we exercise that faculty of faith. We sit under the preaching, we, we learn how to take Christ to ourselves and, and we're being fed and, and this is our calling. This idea of the faculty of faith is also important because it also helps us understand why the child of God has no excuse 
for when he or she walks in sin. Right? You sometimes hear that attitude. A, a member of, ch- of church is walking in sin, and, and his or her attitude is this. Well, I can't change. I can't help it. I just pray and pray for God to change me, but if he doesn't change me, what can I do about it? After all, salvation is all God's work, right? Well, clearly we understand there's something wrong there. But that's how people sometimes think. That's how they think when they don't really hate their sin. They, they feel like being spiritually lazy and they don't want to repent. And they have this kind of attitude and yet they think that they are the regenerated children of God. And, and that this, this is okay. That this is, this is how we should think. And ultimately they are excusing themselves for their sins and they're blaming God for their sins. And the point here is this. If you really are the child of God, then you have the faculty of faith. And if you really are the child of God, then you have the calling to exercise that faculty. Turn from your sins. Turn to Jesus Christ and take what you need from Him to put away this sin. He is your power. You need to live out of Him. Abide in Christ. Either you are a true child of God and you have this faculty of faith and you must repent of your sins and look to Christ and take Him unto yourselves and grow in grace, grow in knowledge. Or you are not a true child of God, you don't have this faculty of faith and you can't repent of your sins and you don't repent of your sins and and it must be shown that you're not a child of God. Well, that's a negative application. The more comforting and encouraging application is this. If I am united to Christ, I always have this faculty, right? I may not always be actively living by faith, right? I walk in sin sometimes. I may not always be confident of my salvation, but I do have this faculty of faith. I can always exercise myself in this, right? It's like doing physical therapy, after surgery, you're laid low, you've become weak. you gotta, you got to do that physical therapy. In the same sense, for me, spiritually, when I've been walking in sin for a while, now i got to do my spiritual therapy. i got to exercise myself in this faculty of faith. I have spiritual life. I can exercise myself in this faith. This power of faith can never be lost. And that's ultimately the case because the Holy Spirit never completely removes himself from the regenerated child of God. The child of God, who's, who's been raised to spiritual life, is never completely without the Holy Spirit. Once united to Christ through the bond of faith, always united to Jesus Christ. That's encouraging for the child of God who is struggling in his walk of faith. That's an encouragement. Grow in grace. Grow in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Exercise yourselves in it, right? Second Peter, add to your faith virtue and charity and, and all these other things, right? Make your calling and election sure. No matter where you are at, you can turn to Jesus, you can seek the Lord, you can appropriate Him and enjoy the blessings of salvation that are hid in Him. That's faith as a faculty. So faith is a gift, faith is a bond, and faith is a faculty. Now, building on everything that we've said, we, it's easy to transition into the last point, understanding how faith is an activity. Saving faith is this bond by which the, 
child of God, elect child of God, is united to Jesus Christ, made a partaker of all his benefits. But that bond is a living bond. It's an active bond. And out of that living bond, the child of God takes Christ to himself, lives out of the power of Christ, and he exercises an active faith. Question and answer 21. The Catechism speaks about this activity of saving faith. What is faith? What is faith? The Catechism says this is what faith is. Not only a certain knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also an assured confidence, which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel, that not only to others, but me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given of God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This is the wonder of faith, that through union with Jesus Christ, my mind becomes illuminated. Right? Through union with Jesus Christ, my heart is softened. New qualities are infused into the will, and I can begin to think God's thoughts after Him. Through the bond of faith, Jesus Christ imparts Himself to me. A glorious transformation takes place. I'm raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, and I can start to think straight. I grow. I grow in my knowledge. I grow in my confidence. I have knowledge. I have confidence, and I exercise myself in this knowledge and confidence and according to this knowledge and confidence. That's faith. First of all, knowledge. True faith is knowledge. What is this knowledge? Well, it's more than a mere head knowledge. It's the spiritual knowledge of God. It's, it's the kind of knowledge that the adult Bible study have, has been discussing in Second Peter. If you look at Second Peter, the whole letter is, is emphasizing the importance of knowledge. It's really emphasizing live by faith. I know God. I know God personally. I have a personal relationship with Him. I know Him. He knows me. I know him as my father for Jesus' sake. I know him as the God of my salvation. I know he loves me. I know he has worked in my heart this love that I have for him. I know the gospel. I know the good news. I know my own sin. Right? Out of saving faith, being able to think straight, I come to know just who I am by nature outside of Christ who I am of myself, but out of this true faith, I also come to know that I am no longer left to myself. I believe in Jesus Christ. He saved me from my sin. He died on the cross 2,000 years ago, taking away my guilt. He also has entered my heart by His Holy Spirit, changing me in the innermost recesses so that I'm a new creation. I know God is my covenant God. He's my Father and my friend. And not only do I know all this, but, but I'm confident of it. For me, he died. For me, he came at Christmas time. I rely on him completely. He's already done it all. There's nothing to add to the finished labors of my Savior. I am confident of God's love to me so that I pray out of the power of Christ. I pray and I pray freely out of faith, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Because I know who you are, and I'm confident that you are Jehovah, the eternally unchanging God 
of your covenant. I know you love me. I am confident of it. Therefore, I won't fear. Right? When I fear, I will put my trust in you. I will exercise my faith. I will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Even though the Lord himself slay me, Job says, yet will I trust in him. I will exercise my faith. I know, he, I, I know him as my Lord, God, and King. I'm confident of his power. And I know him as my Savior. And I'm confident in his leading and guiding and his every purpose that he has with my life. That's faith. That's the activity of faith. That's what it is to live out of Jesus. Right? That's, that's how Jesus lived. And this is Jesus in me. As I, as a branch, am living out of Jesus. We receive the gift of faith. We live out of this bond of faith. We're exercising the faculty of faith. And our faith inevitably is an active faith. That's what true faith is. We take Christ to ourselves. We take the life sap that's flowing out of the trunk. We, we draw it. We, we take it in so that we might live. Because we want to bring forth fruit. Right? We're a branch. This is the purpose of the gardener with me. I want to bring forth fruit to the glory of the husbandman. Because we know, we confess, it's all of his grace. And he is worthy. The power of my life the joy of my life, the, the, the fullness of my life, the strength of my life, it is all of Him. It's all through Him, through His Son. And I know His purpose is that it might all be to Him, to His glory and honor. This, this is the power of Christ in me. Right? We know the song. This is the power of Christ in me. Lord willing, Next week, we will revisit this topic of faith. We, we want to look at more detail at the confidence of faith, this activity of faith. But let this be the takeaway for this morning. This is how we are delivered from our sin and misery, right? This is where we are in the catechism. Through Jesus' death on the cross, making the satisfaction for all my sins, taking away my sin, and combined with that, His perfect obedient life, taking away my guilt, and then also this, Jesus engrafting me to himself through the bond of faith, making me now a partaker of his life, not only obtaining life and righteousness for us, as the catechism says, but as the catechism also says, restoring me to that righteousness and that life. That's how we are delivered that two-step process, how we are delivered from our sin and misery. That's where we are in the catechism. Let us live to the glory of our God, our workman, our, who is the one who has made us what we are in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we delight in learning of thy work of salvation. We love to see how our deliverance from sin and misery makes sense. It fits. We pray that our faith might be strengthened by this, Lord. By thy spirit, we pray that we might receive thy word, we might take it in, and it might be our meat and drink.
for this week ahead and going forward, that we as branches living out of Christ might bring fruit to thy name's glory and honor, the fruit of good works. May Jesus Christ live in us and through us abundantly. In his name we pray, amen.